I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. It's about two-thirds of the way back in the Bible. It is the third of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 5, verse 17. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles in the seat back in front of you that you can pull that out and follow along today. If you're using one of those Bibles in the seat rack in front of you, Luke chapter 5, verse 17 is on page 719, 719. If you don't own a Bible, take that home with you. We want everybody to have a copy of God's Word. It's that important. So I am excited to dig into God's Word with you this morning. We are going to get going right away. Um, While you're finding Luke chapter 5, 17, to bring us all up to speed, We're in a series in the Gospel of Luke, and we've been looking at different stories from the life of Jesus. Jesus has now been in ministry for about a year. He's been traveling throughout Israel teaching, and accompanying this powerful teaching were miraculous healings. Jesus has already healed a man possessed by a demon. He's healed Peter's mother-in-law. Last week, we looked at the story of how Jesus cleansed the man from leprosy. So if you're following along in your notes, what we know about Jesus is that Jesus taught with authority and he healed many. That's what's marked his ministry so far. He's taught with authority and he's healed many. And due to those two things, he has a following. Last week, the scripture we looked at ended with these words. You can see it on the screen. It's Luke chapter 5, verse 15. Would you read this with me? It says, Yet the news about him spread all the more, so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. This is the Jesus that we're spending time with to learn from today. And our story today picks up in Luke chapter 5, verse 17. Would you read this with me? It's the first gray box on your notes. It says, One day Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. This story is also told in Matthew and Mark, and those authors paint a little bit more of this story for us. So I quickly quickly want to look at how Mark introduces this story. He says on the screen, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. So we know Jesus is in his hometown of Capernaum. If you remember, he was rejected in Nazareth, which was his original hometown. And we read in other places in the Bible that Jesus makes Capernaum his home base for ministry. He's probably at Peter's house. And Mark tells us that they were pouring out into the streets to try to hear Jesus teach and to see him heal. So I want us to put ourselves in this story as we get going. This this is a small house, and you're in this room, and you are packed in. There's no air conditioning back then. It's probably very hot. And I don't know if you've ever been in an elevator or a room or a subway where you are packed in, and it's hot, and you're breathing other people's hotness. <laughs> like, it's, it's hot, and it's funky, 
And, and we're in this room and this is the room that Jesus is teaching in. And we're in this packed house and Luke introduces us for the first time to a group of people who will show up repeatedly in the life of Jesus. It's the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. You can read that over and over again, everywhere Jesus went, these guys were there like a shadow. If you're following along in your notes, they were always following Jesus, scrutinizing and questioning him. They were always following him. And listen, if anyone should have recognized who Jesus was, his power and his authority, you would think it would be them. If you're following in your notes, these guys were the most studied, the most religious, and the most important in Jewish society. They were the religious leaders. But over and over again, we see they can't imagine that Jesus might actually be God. Because Jesus doesn't fit the God they had put in a box. If you're following in your notes, they were not open to and did not believe that Jesus was God. They weren't even open to it. In fact, they were adamantly against it. The way these guys read scripture was completely different than the way Jesus taught. The Pharisees did not teach good news. Instead, they were telling people, this is what they were telling people. God will show you favor. God will love you more. And God will take care of you better if you're Jewish and if you try your hardest to follow all the laws in the Old Testament. If you're following in your notes, they taught a false religion of heritage and works. Heritage and works. It was always about rule keeping. It was always about outward appearances. It was always about earning God's love. And one more thing about these guys. If you go back and look at the verse in the first gray box again, do you notice what it says about the Pharisees, what they were doing while Jesus was teaching? They were sitting down. Several weeks ago, Pastor Jeff told us how when a rabbi taught, the teacher would sit and everyone else would stand out of respect. So they're in the front row, not in their own home, not in their hometown. They are sitting down not even acknowledging that Jesus was a teacher with authority while everyone else is standing and packed into this house. The arrogance of these guys. So we have this setting, right? And we can feel some tension in the room. And we're told, continuing in verse 18 and 19, if you're following along in your Bibles, some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. So this is a, a two-story house probably with an outside stairway leading up to the house's flat roof. The typical day, in, the typical roof in Jesus' day would be about a foot uh, deep of dirt packed down to keep leaking out, and then they would cover it with tiles. And so we're told that these men, these men badly wanted to get to Jesus. We don't know how far they've walked from. They're turned away at the door, but they don't let that stop them either. They go up to the roof and they begin a mini excavation to get this guy to Jesus. So if we're imagining we're still in this cramped hot house 
All of a sudden, you hear shoveling coming from the roof. And dirt begins to fall. And then a crack of light would emerge. And it gets bigger and bigger until, unbelievably, a guy on a bed is lowered through this hole in the roof and placed right in front of Jesus. So you have Jesus here. You have the man on the mat here. And you have the Pharisees here probably still shaking dirt off their robes. And in verse 20, into this scene, would you read this with me in the second gray box on your notes? When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Friend, your sins are forgiven. I love to get inside the text and try to imagine what people in the story are thinking. And in this story, I believe the crowd, the people in the house and flooding outdoors, they are expecting a physical healing for several reasons. One, we're in a section of Luke that primarily deals with physical healings. Two, people were coming great distances to hear his teaching and to be healed of their sicknesses, as we saw in verse 15 from last week. And three, Luke gives us some foreshadowing in verse 17 when he said, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. And into this expectation of physical healing, Jesus said, friend, your sins are forgiven. I wonder if this guy thought this. Jesus, I have a more immediate problem here. I can't walk. I just can't get past the idea that if Jesus would have said to the man, what do you want? Which Jesus often asked people, that the man would have said, I want to walk. And the other reason I think this man might have been looking for physical healing is human nature. I just know myself, before following Jesus, there were so many times when I would have rather had Jesus fix my problems than forgive my sin. And I just wonder if this guy thought his most immediate problem was his paralysis. And Jesus, by forgiving the man's sin first, is saying, you think you know the main problem of your life, but you don't. Jesus is saying, look, I, I know you have problems. I know you're suffering. I'm going to get to that. But you need to realize the main problem in your life is not your suffering, it's your sin. If you're following on your notes, the paralyzed man's most immediate problem was not his paralysis. It was his separation from God. What I mean by separation from God is that all of us are created in the image of God. All of us were created by God in his image for a relationship with God. He wants to be with us. But all of us have made decisions where we've put ourselves first and God somewhere behind. And that is called sin. And whether we've sinned a thousand times or one time, we are separated from God because a holy, perfect God cannot be in the presence of sin. And the bad news gets even worse is there's nothing we can do to make that relationship right again. We can't be good enough or try hard enough or come to church enough or read the Bible enough or give enough money away. We can't do it. That's what the Pharisees taught. We could earn it. We can't. But the good news, the gospel of Jesus is that in his life, death, and resurrection, for those who turn from their sin and turn to God, we are completely forgiven and we are made right with God again. 
That is the good news, the gospel of Jesus. Your identity is now found in Christ. And if you're following in your notes, that's why the healing of forgiveness of sin, which is the gospel, is God's greatest gift because it meets our greatest need. It's his greatest gift because it meets our greatest need. We have one most immediate problem. And Jesus, by addressing the spiritual healing before the physical healing, makes this crystal clear. I want to address one other thing really quick. It it deserves to be spoken into. If you notice, when Jesus forgave this guy, he didn't ask for forgiveness. That just struck me as a bit awkward. And I've heard this taught. It was the faith of the friends that saved this guy. The only problem with that is that we don't see anywhere else in Scripture the faith of someone else saving us. It's our own acknowledgement of sin and that Jesus is Savior and Lord. So if everywhere else in Scripture it's taught that it's personal faith that saves, then something else has got to be going on here. And here's what I think it is. We know the man had to have faith because Jesus looked at him and said he saw his faith before he forgave his sin. So there's some mystery. But the paralyzed man came to Jesus with an openness that Jesus could give him what he needed, even if he didn't realize the full extent of what he needed. He trusted Jesus. And, and that's us. That's me. Anytime we come to Jesus, we don't understand the full extent of what we need. We just come to him trusting that he can give us what we need. I think this is why Jesus says faith as small as a mustard seed can move mountains. This man came with open hands, humbly trusting Jesus could help him. And if you're following in your notes, what's happening here is Luke compares the faithlessness of the Pharisees with the faith of the men. The faithlessness of the Pharisees and the faith of the men. Pharisees were tight-fisted. They weren't even open to the idea that Jesus could help them. And this paralyzed man knew Jesus could help his need. If we go back to the story in verse 21, Jesus has just forgiven the man, right? Verse 21 says, The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus just threw down the gauntlet. He just threw down with the Pharisees. So far in the Gospel of Luke, we have seen that Jesus has authority over diseases and disciples, disasters, demons, leprosy, fevers, paralysis. Now, Jesus doesn't just heal physically, he heals spiritually. Just like the story gives us the first glimpse of the Pharisees, this is the first time in Luke where Jesus forgives sin. And what Luke wants us to know, if we're following in our notes, is that by forgiving the man, Jesus claims to be God and have authority over sin. By forgiving him, Jesus claims to be God and have authority over sin. And the Pharisees knew that only God could forgive sin. And they knew 
who Jesus was claiming to be. You notice what Jesus calls himself in verse 24? Son of man. You might remember that from last summer in the Daniel series. This was Jesus' favorite title for himself. It's a majestic title and acclaimed deity. People will tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God. He did. Every time he called himself the son of man, he was claiming to be God. 25 times in Luke, 83 times in all four gospels. Jesus claimed to be God. And from the Pharisees' perspective, this pronouncement was blatant blasphemy because only God can forgive sin. And Jesus was claiming to be God. So I want to go back and and start reading in verse 23 again. We already read this once, but I want to pick up again in verse 23. It says, Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. This is kind of a a logic question that Jesus poses here. And, And so logic tells us it would be easier to say one's sins are forgiven because you can't see it. But in fact, it's the more difficult thing because you have to have authority to forgive sin in the first place. So so follow this. Jesus enables the hard thing, healing the man. He enables the hard thing in order to show the even harder thing, the forgiveness of sins. In order to know, in order that they might know he could forgive sin, which they could not see, he did what they could see by healing him. It's a demonstration of what happens to us when Jesus saves. He saves the man spiritually, which they can't see. And then he says, now walk. This is a demonstration of just what I did inside of you. If you're following in your notes, if the ability of the paralyzed man to be healed and walk is a picture of what Jesus does when he saves us. It's a picture of what Jesus does when he saves us. We go from being completely helpless, dead in our sin, to forgiven and alive in Christ. We finish this story in verse 26. And we read that everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. They were amazed at what they saw. And I'm just wondering here again. They were amazed at what they saw. And I'm wondering if they were amazed by what they heard, that the man was forgiven. They were amazed by the works of Jesus, that a paralyzed man could walk. I wonder if they were amazed at the words of Jesus, your sins are forgiven, because forgiveness of sin was the man's greatest need. I just wonder. Listen, I praise God the man was healed. I rejoice that the man was healed. But the bigger miracle in this story is that his sins were forgiven. With our time left together, I want to speak to two groups of people, those who are not yet followers of Jesus and those who are followers of Jesus and apply this story to our lives. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you're here this morning, thank you for being here. I really mean that. It's not often you go to a place where people just stand up and burst out in song. 
And it's not often you go somewhere and listen to somebody speak for 30 to 35 minutes. So I, I'm grateful that you're here. If you're following in your notes, if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, I want to share with you this morning, if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, your greatest need is the gospel, the forgiveness of sins. It's your greatest need. Friends, don't miss this. If you had to choose between being healed and the forgiveness of your sins, forgiveness is what you want because nothing else will matter for eternity. We don't stand here and we don't say, trust in Christ and your cancer will be gone. We don't say, trust in Christ and you will get the job you want. We don't say, trust in Christ and you'll find success in a month where all of your money problems will be provided for. It's not true. It's prosperity gospel. It's false teaching and it's actually bad news. It's temporary and fleeting and there is better news than that. And the better news is trust in Jesus and you will be made right before God. And the deepest need of your heart will be met in the forgiveness of your sins and you'll be reconciled to God forever. That's much better news. It's much better news. Friends, Jesus didn't come to save us from this life. He came to save us from death. He didn't come to fix our problems. He loves us so much, he did something even better. He died on the cross to forgive your sins and free you from separation with God. That's the good news. But let me balance that out. Because if you're still trying to figure out who this Jesus is, and if I can put my trust in him, I want you to know this. Frequently, God does do things in our lives that are miraculous. Sometimes he heals us of our diseases. We have people in this church who have been healed from a disease or an affliction or relational strife. James 5 says we pray for that. And we have elders available after the services to pray for that anytime. We pray for people walking through very difficult challenges and we've seen God do wonderful things. So that is good. But that should not be our motivating factor for why we come to Jesus we have a more immediate need. And it's the forgiveness of sins. And so today, if, if you've been trying to fill your life with things that leave you empty, if you've been trying to meet your needs with everything under the sun and nothing leaves you with any satisfaction, it's because a relationship with Jesus is the only thing that can meet your most immediate need and provide eternal satisfaction. Today can be the day that happens. It can be the day where you say, I, I recognize my most immediate need is trusting Christ. You can do that. I want to talk to followers of Jesus here. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I invite you to listen into this. Lean in, because I want you to know what happens once you become a follower of Jesus and the good news for us. If you're following in your notes, if you're a follower of Jesus, your greatest need is the gospel. Your greatest needs the gospel. It's to remember who God is and your identity in Christ that you are forgiven. You see, the gospel doesn't simply rescue us from the past and rescue us for the future. It rescues us in the present and frees us from things like being enslaved to fear, insecurity, anger, self-reliance, pride on one end and self-hatred on the other. What I'm learning is it is so easy to forget who God is and what he has done for us and our identity in him. We spent all last fall talking about this in the book of Ephesians because it is so important. 
And when I'm learning about myself is there's two ways that I notice that I'm forgetting God, that I'm forgetting the gospel. And maybe you can resonate with these. The first is in my prayers. My prayer life gives it away. When I'm forgetting who God is and what he's done for me, when I forget the gospel, I spend very little time thanking him for who he is. I don't adore him at all. I spend very little time confessing my sin so that nothing's messing up our relationship. Instead, I find myself going straight to asking God to providing for my needs the way I think they needed to be provided for. And here's what happens. This is the bad news for me. If God doesn't answer my prayers the way I want him to answer them and the way I think he should, I get mad at him and I begin questioning his character and his goodness. And that is a trigger for me that I have forgotten the good news. It's in those moments the Holy Spirit reveals to me that I'm more interested in what God can do for me than a relationship with him. And it's in those moments, and I'll admit there are still days where I love God for what he can give me more than who he is. And I need to remember the gospel. It's my most immediate need. It's our most immediate need. Sarah and I have been in the adoption process for nearly five years, and I can't think of many days that have gone by where we haven't prayed for our son in Ethiopia. And it's been one hang-up after another and slow down after another. And we're getting really close to traveling probably within a month to go get our son. And I remember getting a call, lest you think pastors are immune from this, we get a call about a month and a half ago that says there's yet another slowdown and government agency shutdown. And I remember for three days, I just threw a fit. I was so mad at God. He didn't answer my prayers the way I thought he should. And I was just mad. And thank God for for my wife, who one day just looked at me and said, how long is this going to go on? Tell God this. Tell him how you're feeling and remember who he is. Remind yourself. And it took going to his word and spending time worshiping him to remember the gospel. I just wonder if any of you can resonate with that. We should absolutely pray, and we're told to ask for anything, but no healthy relationship is based on simply asking for things. We need to remember the gospel. The second way I notice I'm not remembering the gospel is when I find my identity in what I accomplish or what I fail at. How I feel about myself is based on my performance. I had a good day parenting, I'm a great parent. I had a bad day parenting, I'm a failure and a loser. My performance determines my identity. And that's why preaching the gospel to yourself every day is so important because we're so naturally prone to look to ourselves and our performance more than we look to Christ and his performance. We just fall into this spiritual amnesia and it wreaks all sorts of havoc in our lives. I want to invite you to turn your notes over. I tricked you here. I heard you, some of you put them away. So take them back out. I want you to turn them over. About a month ago, our small group was talking about the importance of remembering the gospel. In our context, it was about how it influences our parenting. And I spent a little bit of time and I just wrote down what happens when I forget who God is and my identity with him. Can I say this really quick before we go over this list? If you are not in a small group, I highly, highly encourage you to get in a group outside of this room to do life with, 
to challenge one another, to encourage one another, to do life with one another. I, I love my group. We've been together five years, but I, I can't encourage you enough to get part of a group. You'll have opportunities for that, but I just want to plant a seed of how important that is in your life. So I wrote this for our group, and we went over it, and we were just going through this, what happens when I forget, and the havoc that it causes in our lives. And so I wrote, when I forget God's wisdom, I worry. When I forget God's sovereignty, I get anxious. When I forget that God is in control, I try to grasp at things instead of trust him. When I forget God's grace, a gift given freely to me, I think I can earn God's love by how hard I work for him. When I forget God's grace, I think he owes me. When I forget God's mercy, not getting what I deserve, I get resentful of others. When I forget God's forgiveness, I don't forgive others. When I forget God's patience with me, I get impatient towards my kids, wife, and others. When I forget God's goodness, I think he's holding out on me. When I forget God's love, I don't love others the way he wants me to. When I, don't, when I forget God's kindness, I view him as a big brother waiting to hammer me. When I forget how God disciplines me, I discipline my children inappropriately and use power, manipulation, fear, guilt, and shame to get them to do what I want. When I forget God doesn't hold my sin over my head, I hold on to grudges. When I forget that only God satisfies, I turn to idols. When I forget God's faithfulness in the past, I don't think he wants to answer my prayers or wants to be involved in my life right now. When I forget God's humility, I believe power is the way to accomplish things. When I forget God never gave up on me, I give up on praying for lost family members and friends. And when, God, when, when I forget God wants me to talk to him and ask for help, I come up with my own clever plans. I could have written a hundred more of those and I'd encourage you to make your own list this week or add to this list. This is one of the assignments life groups will do together this week is to go over this list and add to it. Where do you forget? So you know where to remember. Because when we forget our most immediate need, the gospel of Jesus, who God is, what he did for us and who we are in Christ, when we forget that, we fix our eyes on our problems instead of fixing our eyes on him. We need to remember the gospel. So we, we thought about how to end these services today and we wanted to practice the discipline of remembering together. So for the next 10 to 12 minutes, we wanna spend time training and remembering this gospel. So here's what I want to ask you to do. I want you to fold up your stuff, put your stuff away, put it under your seat. I know that we're all thinking about where we have to go after this, but I'm going to ask you to just set that aside and, and leave it there and tend to what's at hand. We want to spend time training in the discipline of remembering because when we do this together, gathered it trains us how to do it when we're scattered. And we can do this at home with our kids, with our families, alone in our cars, at lunch. We can practice remembering. And the two ways we're gonna do this for the next few minutes is through word and worship. Word and worship. Word is the Bible. It is the best way to remind us of who God is what he's done for us and who we are in Christ. It's why we encourage you to be in the Bible every day. Over the past couple of years, I've had to go through the Bible and just underline every time I come across the character of God and my identity in Christ. I need the reminding. I've done that now for several years. 
And worship is simply our response to who God is. It's a whole life response, but for our time together, it's going to be through song. It's hard to fix our eyes on ourselves when God is the object of our worship. And so we're going to do that through song. But you can do this on your own. We just want to train together now to give you the practice of when we leave here. So I want to begin. I just want to read a portion of Psalm 77 over you. And then Chuck's going to help us remember. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I will meditate on all your ways, on all your works, on all your mighty deeds. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Lord, we need to remember. In our time together here this morning, would you help us remember who you are, what you've done for us, and who we are in you. Remind us of the gospel, our most immediate need. God, we need to remember. Remember.